Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. It's our first episode back after the festive break, so Happy New Year. Today we hear from C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks and North America Editor Jordan Pinto about the major trends and stories they see shaping the TV industry in 2022. And from In My Skin creator, writer and executive producer Kaylee Llewellyn about the BAFTA-winning BBC comedy drama tackling mental health and sexuality. Welcome back to the C21 podcast after the festive break. We hope you had a good one and are all fired up for another fantastic year in television. In this episode, I sat down with C21 editorial director Ed Waller, Channel 21 international editor Nico Franks and North America editor Jordan Pinto to discuss the major trends and stories they see influencing the landscape in 2022 and beyond. We talked about subjects including the rise of fast channels, the growing internationalisation of content, mergers and acquisitions like Discovery and Warner Media, Amazon and MGM, and former Disney high flyers Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs trying to outfox the mouse house with their own rapidly expanding media empire. As we all know, events move quickly in this industry, and it's worth noting that earlier this week, after this conversation was recorded, Mayer and Staggs unveiled the name of their new venture, Candle Media, plus stakes in Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith's Westbrook Media, and in Israeli outfit Faraway Road Productions, maker of hit Netflix series Fowder. All three media, which you'll also hear referenced in a moment in relation to a discussion about Fast Channels, has also this week unveiled one dedicated to its UK detective drama Midsummer Murders. Anyway, without further ado, here's Ed, Nico and Jordan. Welcome everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Hope you all had a a good break and uh, all raring to go for 2022. You know, let's talk about some of the things that we expect to happen in the industry moving forwards over the next 12 months. The last 18 months to two years have obviously been pretty seismic in terms of the changes that uh, COVID has brought to the business and and the rise of streaming at the same time. And those trends haven't kind of gone away or the pandemic hasn't gone away either. So um, we're all sort of uh, still adjusting to to Omicron and all that that brings. But um, as far as the business goes, Ed, how do you see 2022 panning out? Well, thanks, John. Um, rather than focus on COVID and, and the pandemic and everything like that, I think one of the big things for this year is going to be continued growth of fast channels. We were at Content London last month and everyone seems to be talking about fast channels. Obviously, there's been huge growth over, uh, last year, but I think they're just going to become really mainstream. Distributors are going to start launching them for all their main channel brands. We've obviously seen a lot of that with you know fast channels dedicated to certain channel brands like Baywatch or Midsummer Murders. But I think we're at that point where every, every channel brand is going to have its own fast channel you know i remember years ago when it was news that that distributors would launch websites or distributors would launch apps dedicated to their programs and and i think now it's going to become de rigueur for every big major channel brand to have its own fast channel you know i think it's reached that that mainstream point now you know not just for distributors but for you know pay tvs trying to avoid getting bypassed you know tv manufacturers are building them into their platforms to aggregate these uh, these services you know the, the smart tv platforms like samsung and zumo and lg they're all now the uh, the new gatekeepers and the same with the connected tv devices like roku and amazon firestick so i think i think it's 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 a real opportunity because you know the argument that, get, that says that i buy that argument that says yeah they're just buying library for non-exclusive rights but that's exactly how pay tv started uh, all those years ago that's exactly how s started they'll just buy library for uh, you know non-exclusive but are now and you know and now look what the size of the of the, of the SVOD industry now so i think i think um although it's a, a rights management nightmare as louise pedersen of all three media international said at content london last month managing all these windows for avod and SVOD and, and all the other traditional legacy clients. I think distributors are seeing the upside and and buying up library. You know, this, the, the demand for f- from fast channels and AVOD services is now driving the M&A sector. And you know, if you look at uh, last month, there was um, Fox buying Marvista, largely down to its rights, its t- TV movie rights to feed into Tubi. You know, uh, we saw um, last year all three concluding its deal for DRG, and that's very much about buying up library, as Louise Pedersen said on stage last month to feed into all those uh, fast channel and AVOD services that are demanding hours and hours and hours of uh, library content 
often on a non-exclusive basis. I think what we're going to see this year is those fast channels and AVOD services getting more uh, into original commissioning, you know, moving away from just library uh, uh, acquisitions-based content to uh, commissioning their own their own content in the same way that Pay TV did 20 years ago and SBOD did a couple of years ago. Interesting that you decide to focus on that, on the the, the free ad-supported TV channels sort of space to, to kick things off, because I guess the big conversation that there has been over the past few years has always been the uh, the SVOD side of things, and certainly Netflix and Squid Game was kind of one of the high watermarks and, and the big talking points of 2021. Yeah, I think um, I think everyone's realised that uh, there's an upside to free services. Free is good, right? Everyone's, uh, everyone's returning to free because they don't want to manage all these new, you know, multiple subscription services so i think a free service that aggregates a, 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 becomes a platform for fast and avod services is, is, is a real winner for this year jordan uh, squid game was something that you were particularly interested in i think from uh, the north american kind of point of view and um netflix last year if we can we can talk about them um you know they were beginning to sort of trickle out a little bit more information in terms of viewership of of some of their top shows how do you think that's all going to unfold in 2022 yeah it was a it was a pretty fascinating year i thought um and i think it's one in which we started to maybe understand netflix a little better than we had done in the past um, one, of, one of the things I found the most interesting was the, the infamous Netflix leaks, um, whereby employees who were, uh, I think at the time they were angered by Netflix's handling of the situation around the Dave Chappelle special. They leaked sensitive data to um, the US publication Bloomberg. Um, but what the data showed was pretty pretty fascinating. And it, it showed that, um, so I think Netflix spent about $21 million producing Squid Game. Um, which, as we all know, became the most watched series ever on the platform. Um, But interestingly, the series was predicted by Netflix to generate almost 900 million in what Netflix calls impact value, uh, which is their internal metric that they use to to basically measure the economic contribution of any given series. Um, Obviously, 900 million is is an enormous amount of money, um, especially in the context of Netflix spending maybe, say, 17 or 18 billion on, on content annually. Um, anyway, I think that very kind of clearly underscores the strategy for pursuing more local language content. Um, and that was something Netflix's head of uh, global TV, Bella Bajaria, was very, um, very keen to highlight at Content London in December. I think also the fact that Netflix themselves have started releasing weekly viewership data, um, I find it interesting. I know some people kind of roll their eyes a bit um, and say that the data that Netflix is releasing on a weekly basis is nothing more than a promotional tool to highlight how well their shows are doing. And that is true to a degree, but I think that maybe maybe because we've been feeding on scraps for so long, it's um, it's certainly new information that gives us a bit of a new wind- window into how shows are performing on Netflix and perhaps gives a slight indication to why things sometimes get cancelled. Um, but I've spoken to a few producers off the record about what they think about this new Netflix data. And the, the the overriding sentiment seems to be the producers basically say that it's hard not to look at these weekly charts because you're you know you're desperate to see whether whether you're on them. However, it doesn't have any information as pertains to the age demographics or when viewers lose interest in a certain show or a movie. So essentially, they're I think they're in the same position as they were in before Netflix started releasing data, which is basically that you only really know whether your show is doing well when Netflix commissions another season or when they come back to you and say what else do you have on the go. What else do you have in development that we can talk about? So I think on balance, it's probably not massively insightful data that Netflix is putting out there now, but it does give us some clues and it's certainly more than we had before. And is that a trend you think we're going to see more of in 2022? I mean, obviously the market's becoming much more competitive. So is there a, a pressure on them to release more data? I think there will be a pressure on, on them to, well, there's certainly a pressure on them to, to release more data. Whether they will or whether they have to is is up for debate. I think some of the other streaming services and other ones that could be coming online, they certainly aren't releasing much data at the moment. So I, I don't necessarily think Netflix should be the only service that is, is, is required to do that. Um, one thing, now that they're doing this um, weekly viewing data, they are bringing in an independent, um, I suppose, auditor to, to kind of to verify that their data is accurate. I would imagine that they wouldn't necessarily be jumping at the chance to release any more data than they uh, they kind of feel they have to. You highlighted the growing internationalization of of content. Squid Game is one of the great examples of that. Um, Ampere Analysis, I think Nico, they released a report not that long ago talking about this as well. We're going to see an increasing sort of shift in that direction as well. Audiences around the world want content from all sorts of different places and more and more. 
Yeah, that's definitely what Squid Game proved, if uh, there were any doubters to that. And yeah, the research from Ampere Analysis, so that came out in December, and um, highlighted the growing internationalization of content and um, how the share of the world's, so 100 most popular titles made outside of the US, so that had grown from 15% um, in 2017, being non-English language, uh, to 27% in 2021. So that shows that, you know, there is this shift kind of away from the US as the as the center of the TV universe, which is, you know, quite exciting, I think. And it's interesting that a lot of the companies at the forefront of that are US companies like Netflix, you know, setting up offices all around the world in, in different hubs um, in, in cities around the world. Uh, Disney Plus following a similar pattern, hiring commissioners locally in, in countries such as the UK. So obviously that's not non-English language. But what I'd be interested to see this year is whether or not Obviously, the shows that we think of uh, when we think of a non-English language hit, they've tended to be dramas um, with a few exceptions. But um, I think this year we might see, you know, that that cliche that comedy doesn't travel really kind of put to bed with lots more non-English language comedies potentially breaking out. There's one potentially quite promising one coming out of Germany that started filming at the tail end of 2021. So one promising international comedy coming out of Germany is a show called uh, Greenlight German Genius. So that comes from uh, Kida Hodor Ramadan, who starred in Four Blocks. And it's quite a meta show that's based on a real life event when Ramadan responded to a tweet from Gervais, from Ricky Gervais, praising his portrayal of a, of a gangster in the German crime drama Four Blocks. And so the show is all about Gervais giving him the rights for a German adaptation of extras. And it kind of plays on that impression that Germany, you know, Germans don't have a sense of humor. So obviously with Ricky Gervais attached, you know, he's huge international success with Afterlife recently. So we'll see how that looks on screen. But also I think it might not just be restrained to comedies. Uh, we might see potentially more non-English language unscripted hits coming out. And we've already seen that to an extent with a show like Terrace House, which came out of Japan and Netflix carried in lots of territories around the world. And that kind of became a bit of a cult hit. But I think it'll be interesting to see potentially, yeah, more breakout non-English language reality hits coming through. I guess one of the other things which told us how international the business was becoming in 2021 was the um, acquisition by CJ E&M, a uh, South Korean company of Endeavor content in the US. We've seen and, and written a lot about Korean formats being exported around the world, but the fact that a South Korean company acquired this sort of giant of the US agency world, very telling, wouldn't you say, Ed? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a continuing trend, you know, the... Um... The buying up of Western assets by Asian companies. It's it's been going on quite some time in the animation space. You know, an Indian animation company called Toons bought up Telegale and in, in in Ireland and and um, Emira in Spain. You know, in the animation space that really works because obviously they can farm out all the animation to places like India where labor is a lot cheaper. Um, but we're seeing it now with, with uh, as you say, uh, CJ from Korea uh, buying up Endeavor content, not the agency arm, but the, the content arm for almost a billion dollars. Previously, they bought uh, shares in uh, in DreamWorks. They they still own Echo Rights in Scandinavia. They own uh, a slice of Sky, uh, Skydance in LA. So they're, they're obviously making a big play to buy up content and uh, content rights. And why is that? Because they want to take their joint venture streaming service, TVing, uh, around the world. And, and you know, if, if someone's going to capitalize on the growing demand for Korean content, why shouldn't it be a Korean company rather than Netflix or anyone else? So that's I can see the logic of that, you know, buying up um uh, content and assets, content assets, production assets to feed into teething, which is a JV with uh, JTBC and Naver. Uh, we also saw Naver itself buying up Wattpad, paying $600 million for that uh, in May last year, merging it with its own uh, webtoon company. So there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, examples of Asian companies buying up Western assets, but also buying up IP and content specifically to feed into their, their own streaming services. You know, the streaming market isn't, isn't, you know, is currently dominated by players like Netflix and Amazon and what have you. But, you know, who's to say you know, the Chinese giants won't make a move on, you know, certainly we've seen some Korean giants trying to do that as well. So it feeds into that that, that globalization, not just of content, but the, the streaming services that deliver that content. You know, it, 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 
I think the globalization of, of programming trend isn't just about who's producing it, but who's delivering it as well. So I think that's something that's going to be a big a big change this year. You know, you might you might see Korean services toppling uh, or moving up the the ranks uh, in terms of the global streamers, and certainly buying up IP. I mean, the demand for IP is another thing that's going to be growing this year. You know, we last year we also saw. Netflix buying Roald Dahl's estate. A few years ago, they bought Miller World Comic Publishing. You know, we've all seen how the US studios are buying up uh, comic IP. But I think that this year there's going to be a real, a real run or a real search for what other literary estates are available to to buy. You know, there's you know the the, the prices for rights for literary works to adapt to TV are, are going through the roof. And uh, you know, I think I think this year is going to you know see an expansion of that into other areas. We've already seen interesting things like. Twitter feeds being classified as IP to turn into video content, uh, or you know, obviously live stories and things like that. But I think um, as 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 demand for content rises, I think demand for IP to turn into that content is is going to rise as well. I mean, like as soon as an interesting magazine article publishes, the companies just queue up to to bid for it and and try and turn it into an article, turn it into a bit of content. So I think that's a real trend that's going to continue this year as well. That race for IP and um, you know for for consumer eyeballs has obviously been one of the driving forces behind all the wave of, of mergers and, and acquisitions that we've seen and continue to see through the industry. Uh, Discovery and Water Media are still to play out. Amazon and, and MGM. Um, you know, from the North American point of view, Jordan, how do you see those those mergers and uh, you know what are the ramifications of those for for twenty twenty two? Yeah, I think it's fair to say the ramifications will be huge, um, but it, it's still very early days in telling exactly what that will look like. Um, yeah, Jonathan, you've you named most of, uh, or I think all of the the major ones there, and the deal that will obviously has been grabbing the most headlines and is the deal that people want to understand the most is the Warner Media discovered Discovery deal. Um, AT and T's John Stanky and Discovery's David Zaslav have said repeatedly that the deal is expected to close in the middle of 2022. And there's no reason to necessarily suspect that that won't be the case. But the the Biden administration has been taking a slightly closer look from a regulatory perspective at some of these M&A maneuvers recently. And then separately, a group of more than 30 U.S. Congress Democrats um, have said that they think the deal raises um, significant antitrust concerns. I think that that news came out in early December um, and it kind of represented the first minor speed bump um, for the deal. As I said, there's there's, there's no there's nothing to suggest the deal won't go through, but I think maybe it's an open debate whether it will go through in its current form. And I think one of the main reasons that David Zaslav has been so tight-lipped about this, um, the, the, this go-to-market strategy that they've been talking about and this strategy that has apparently already been mapped out is that they want to make sure that the deal actually is approved um, in the current form before they kind of go out and, and trumpet what they what they think um, this combined company will look like. And again, they've, they've been quite tight-lipped about that, but essentially it l- sounds like there'll be some kind of streaming service that combines the libraries of Warner Media and Discovery. And the aim, as David Zaslav has kind of um, alluded to, is to kind of try and race to that 200 million subscriber mark, which Netflix has, of course, already surpassed. But I suppose to kind of lock horns and try and uh, compete head to head with Netflix and Disney. Mentioning Disney there as well, Disney Plus obviously growing massively. Um, you know, there are some predictions it's going to top Netflix in the not too distant future. But two executives who were overlooked for the for the the, the senior leadership post there, uh, Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, they're continuing to sort of try to create their own Disney by the, by the looks of it with their Blackstone backed um, media company. They acquired Moonbug, the owner of, of Coca Melon and Hello Sunshine as well. Last year, they seem to be on a tear. I'm, I'm sure we can expect to hear more from them. Yes, I, I would think so. I, th- I think um, uh, a lot of people are looking around and thinking who's who's the next logical acquisition target for them. I haven't I haven't heard too much in the way of rumors about um, about who or what might be next. But yeah, so they paid three billion for um, for Moonbug Entertainment, and they paid around nine hundred million for Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine. So they have a, they have very very deep pockets. The other um, question will be, when are they going to get a real name for this company? Because I think we're all tired of calling it Kevin Mayer and Tom Stagg's unnamed media venture backed by Blackstone Group. So an official name would be lovely to try and shorten that up for us. In terms of Disney Plus, Nico, interesting things coming from them. What do you see from a from a content perspective? What catches your eye from Disney Plus in 2022? 
I think in in 2022 with Disney, obviously, you're going to see more and more shows from their huge, you know, brands that they have. Those kind of tentpole brands like Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars, you know, just to name a few. And I think the perception of Disney Plus is probably changing in amongst consumers. I think a lot of people who I speak to who don't have kids kind of dismiss Disney Plus as well. Why would I need? Disney Plus because it's just Disney films. But gradually that perception is changing. And I think the Get Back uh, Beatles documentary that they they launched um, at the tail end of 2021 will have done a big uh, service to, to that. I've I heard lots of people, you know, signing up just to watch that alone. And it's interesting how it's kind of, it, it shows what's possible in streaming basically, because if that had been on a traditional broadcaster, it never would have been three, almost three our films, um, as you do see it uh, on Disney Plus, it would have been a lot shorter. And I suppose some people, you know, they would have preferred that. But I think what it does allow is for the super fans, of which there are many for the Beatles, obviously, those eight hours that you can spend basically in the recording room with all four Beatles. Um, it's just, yeah, incredible and wouldn't have been possible just a few years ago, really, to to have been delivered in such a way. So I think, yeah, as Disney Plus matures, I think its audience will mature as well. And yeah, the more kind of shows and movies and in that vein, you know, targeting a bit more of a mature audience, I think that's probably what they're lacking at the moment. Um, because once you do watch, you know, those handful of shows, there isn't quite the depth um, in terms of originals, um, you know, to compete with, with with Netflix at the moment. But but obviously that's coming. I think one thing to add to that, I mean, obviously the get back example is a great example of the trend that I'm picking up on of demand for premium factual. This is obviously driving the Warner Brothers Discovery merger as well, this demand for premium factual. And it's something that was loud and clear at Content London as well. And, and I heard it all through last year, this demand for premium factual and distributors desperately trying to rearrange themselves to, to capitalise on the demand. So they're, you know, they're expanding their premium factual slate, buying up companies to get into that premium factual slate we saw sort of um all three buying silverback uh that was in 2020 last year we saw Fremantle hiring mandy chang from uh, bbc storyville and so distributors that aren't in the premium factual space are trying to get into it uh, all because of this demand and um you know they're borrowing the same finance models that have worked so well in premium scripted to take them into that that space so i think i think we're going to see an awful lot more of that there's loads of production companies launching to get into that you know telltale launched at the the tail end of 21 which is you know jago lee john fothergill and former red arrow boss james baker um also some former viacom cbs executives claire mccardlin and rebecca knight launched collective media group at the tail end of last year so there's a lot of sort of jockeying for position amongst distributors producers all to try and capitalize and, and exploit this this demand from the streamers for premium high-end factual and get back as a great example of it as nico said one of the other issues that we're seeing in the industry amongst all this demand for for content is the actual ability to produce it not only in the midst of of, of sort of you know covid restrictions but there seems to be a real shortage of the talent of the crew to actually staff some of these shows as well because the demand is so high yeah, that's something that was, again, really loud and clear at Content London, this this concept of talent inflation, uh, which uh, Wayne Gard from Sony coined, you know, it's it's uh, it's becoming a real issue for producers and, and people that are financing shows. And also in other sessions, uh, there was lots of talk about the need for training and, you know, the shortage of skilled, you know, whether it's cameramen or video editors or even talented writers, you know, this, this idea of talent inflation goes behind the camera as well. So I think what we're going to see this year is a lot of companies that are demanding more skilled workforces, just taking the matters into their own hands, not waiting for governments or, you know, academia to su supply new courses at universities, or whatever. They're just going to start training up video editors, developing writers and doing it off their own bat. You know, we saw how the, the shortage of HGV drivers last year wasn't resolved by governments at all. Uh, so I think uh, the industry has to realise that it's, it needs to do it itself if it, if it wants to sort of have a broader reservoir of talent behind the camera or, or uh, you know, whether that's writers or video editors, it has to train them up itself and there's initiatives that are already underway to do that. And I think we'll see more, much more of that this year. Jordan, Nico, other issues that you foresee in 2022 with a bit of crystal ball gazing? 
Well, just to follow up on that, crew crunch, as I think people were calling it at Content London. I think when Lord of the Rings, the second season of that, the production moves to the UK, you know, the UK is already kind of creaking, you know, under the weight of the amount of production, you know, for better or worse, because obviously it is a positive thing in one sense. But when Lord of the Rings arrives, you know, that's really going to put an ex- the next level of strain on it. And at Content London, Georgia Brown, Amazon's head of European television, was at pains to emphasise that Amazon is going to try and, you know, bring in initiatives of its own to, to train and bring in new talent into the industry, which I think um, it hopefully realises is necessary because by bringing it from New Zealand to the UK, it's really um, testing the boundaries of capacity in the UK, I think, uh, this year. Jordan, what about in the States? Yeah, well, one of the, I suppose, one of the stories of the year in, in 2021, I think something that will probably bleed into this year as well, was the the showdown between IATSE, which is the crew union in the US, and the US studios over, over working conditions. So negotiations over a new deal, they started in about the middle of 2021, and they were essentially stalled completely um, until IATSE members and leadership, they really rose up and threatened to strike. And the, the threat of the strike would have been completely historic in Hollywood. Ultimately, the strike was narrowly averted, but it came down to the wire before the studios kind of budged on um, some of the conditions that IATC uh, were asking for, which were things like extended break times, talk about the hours between shifts, pay, and and some other things. Um, that agreement was then ratified by IATC's membership, but it was only done so by a razor-thin margin, suggesting that there are people that are still weren't really necessarily happy with the new deal that was struck. Um, and w- one thing I picked up on a lot at the time of these negotiations was some of the support that IATI had from other crew unions um, internationally. And so I, I think at the moment, it's fair to say that, especially you know the, the people on the ground, on the sets, feel that maybe there's a slight disconnect between all this kind of high level talk about a content boom and how all this I- I expanded investment in content is happening when they personally seem to feel that the benefits of this streaming boom haven't necessarily filtered down to every single person that's working on the set at the moment. I think it's probably some, some, something to watch for in the year ahead. Okay, well, um, to wrap up, we always do this with our interviewees. So, so let, let's uh, throw the question upon ourselves. Wild predictions for 2022. What are going to be uh, the big stories that we'll be talking about this time next year, looking back on the uh, what's no doubt going to be another very exciting year. Ed? I think uh, one of the hot topics is, 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 is going to be gaming this year. I mean, if, you know, Netflix last year made a big move into gaming, and, and I think if they do uh, and make success out of it, then everyone's going to have to get into gaming. I mean, there's been attempts to merge sort of movies and gaming and TV and gaming in the past and with, with mixed uh, consequences and mixed results. But I think uh, this year, everyone's there's going to be a, the sound of TV production companies and distribution companies being forced to uh, sort of revise and, and think about their gaming strategy uh, uh, or at risk of, of losing out. Nico, what about you? Uh, well, one thing I hope will definitely be part of the conversation and much, much more in 2022 is um, the inclusion of disability into the conversation around diversity. Um, and in the UK, that's really being led by a campaign group called Underlying Health Condition, uh, which launched uh, with an event in London in December. And so that's made up of uh, Jack Thorne, Genevieve Barr, Katie Player and Holly Lubrun. And it's really demanding structural change to bring about improved accessibility um, in the industry. And I think, you know, we've seen how the TV industry was able to adapt to COVID and really, you know, it's it's pretty damning that it's never really adapted to become accessible to to every possible person. So I think that's something that hopefully will have shifted quite a lot by this time next year. And in terms of wild predictions, I'm not sure. In terms of like, obviously, streaming's just going to get bigger and bigger. But um, at the same time, we've seen how sports and specifically kind of football, as you know, over the course of the pandemic, um, in in the sense of entertainment, has got bigger and bigger. So maybe uh, a streamer acquiring a football club could be on the cards you know giving it rights to to all the players images and things like that and access things like that maybe that could be something that happens in, in 2022 Fair well, I football clubs well, they could buy a whole league whole league i mean that'd be quite expensive but there are you know the premier league is in quite good health but yeah elsewhere in europe there are some leagues that are really struggling uh financially so potentially yeah a streamer could come in and bail and bail one of those out 
Interesting. Jordan, what about you? Yeah, all, all main um, pro- prognosticators and people far smarter than I were or and have been predicting that there'll be some more consolidation in the streaming space in the year or years ahead. Um, exactly what that looks like is, I think, still up for debate, but it, it is certainly something that people are preparing for. And um, indeed, uh, David Zaslav said that one of the reasons that Discovery and Warner Media are merging is to give them the size to compete with some of the future streaming bear moths. Um, so it's it's kind of to, you know, I suppose the plan is to get to a certain size that they're able to react to the potential for other consolidation elsewhere in the market. So I think in terms of a wild prediction or perhaps a not so wild prediction, I think perhaps a, a major um, acquisition in the streaming space could happen. I think it'll also be interesting to see and maybe just slightly following up on a point Ed was talking about earlier on, uh, the rise of local SVOD services. Um, you have services like TVing, Viaplay, of course, making a big expansion effort now. It's the same with BritBox. Um, you have services like Seymour as well. It'll be interesting to see which of those survive and which of those are able to kind of expand and maybe even compete with um, with some of the true bear moths, the, the Disney's, Netflix's, and Amazon's. C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks, and North America Editor Jordan Pinto. In My Skin is an autobiographical coming-of-age comedy drama from Welsh writer Kayleigh Llewellyn. Having initially debuted as a pilot for BBC Wales, the show about a lesbian teenager and her relationship with a bipolar mother and abusive father was ordered for a full series on BBC Three. Produced by Tim Hinks and Peter Fincham's Expectation Entertainment, the first season went on to win BAFTA and Royal Television Society awards before being recommissioned, with the second and final instalment released recently. Llewellyn, whose credits also include stints on series including Casualty, Stella and Killing Eve, spoke to Michael Pickard about the show and other projects she has in development. So Kayleigh, thank you for joining us. I mean, just give us a brief introduction to In My Skin. It's a comedy drama, probably slight emphasis on the drama for BBC Three and BBC Wales, which is a highly autobiographical tale about a 16-year-old girl who at school is posing as kind of a run-of-the-mill kid, but all the while is hiding the fact that her mum has bipolar disorder type 1 and is frequently sectioned in a mental facility very close to her school, and that her dad is an abusive addict, ex-house angel, not very nice man. Uh, and she's very desperate to keep that reality from her peers. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a, a lot of the story, I guess, the, the situations and the conflict that unfolds is, is largely down to her trying to lead this double life, isn't it? She's kind of got a, not a secret identity as such, but certainly trying to keep her friends and her school life away from her family life. I mean, tell me a bit about, I guess, how the story unfolds and how you have these kind of two lives, essentially, kind of clashing at various points. Well, in series one, we follow Bethan at the age of 16. And that series really plays out over about three weeks. It charts one of her mum's mental breakdowns from sort of being sectioned through to the stories that follow from there. So it all plays out over quite a short period of time. And Bethan is just a little bit younger and learning, you know, about who she is in the world and, and all the things we go through at 16. So I think in series one, the nature of her deception is a little more frivolous in the sense that it comes from a very deep place, as in she feels deep, deep shame and knows that what she's going through isn't normal and fears that she will be shunned if people find out. But the way she goes about hiding things, you know, it's like lying about having a conservatory at home or that her mum works in HR and that her dad is like, and I think she says he's like in IT or something. Whereas in series two, she's a little bit older. She's heading quickly to turn 18. She's going through her first love. She's wiser she's learned a little bit more about the world and so series two we really see more of Beth and kind of battling with this internal dilemma of whether she will be able to fly the nest and go and pursue her own happiness as all teenagers are looking to do or whether she will need to stay home and take care of her mum so I suppose to boil it down it is do I put my happiness first or hers is is what she's dealing with in series two and I mean we shouldn't forget that this is an award-winning series you know quite um remarkably you know you've got awards for just the pilot a couple of years ago and and then you won best writer at the BAFTAs in, in Wales for season one uh, when the full season came out so you know there's a lot of status with the show what was that like for you coming you know enjoying that but then having to come back for season two and, and sort of getting back to the the coalface so to speak in terms of just writing another story that you hoped would match um, you know the success that season one had. 
A lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> the bar had been set a little bit higher. You know, going into the pilot was just kind of this scrappy, joyous experience. Um, it was my first original commission. Couldn't quite believe that it was happening. You know, just thrilled. And then to win awards for that pilot, again, just, you know, blindsided by it. Hadn't, hadn't seen it coming. So that was all wonderful. But then, you know, when the dust settles on that, you're like, ooh, gotta, gotta, <laughs> gotta deliver now. People have expectations are a little little bit higher so I really procrastinated for a long time I had like quite severe writer's block on it although writer's block isn't quite the right term I knew what the story was I wasn't blocked on what the story was I was blocked on whether I could write it you know just that kind of like in a monologue going you're probably not that good people are going to realize it was all a bit of a fake hype um so I put it off for a long time and then eventually it got to crunch time it was like early January to be fair we were struggling to shore up funding for the show as well for series two so I think that fed into not being able to write it because there was this stress of like it actually might not happen and then I got the call on January 10th to say okay we've got the money you need to go we're gonna start shooting on I think it was like the 25th of March so then I was like okay gotta get real so I wrote all five episodes in five and a half weeks it was it was intense when you look back on season one what were some of the things that you thought worked really well and did that then influence what you wanted to do in season two or did you kind of want to move away from that and and kind of explore new story points perhaps or or take the characters in new directions so you weren't kind of just repeating what had obviously worked so well in season one I didn't want to reinvent the wheel because number one I, I was overall very happy with the first series but of course we're always learning and as I say it was my first original show we had a new director come in for series one because our uh, Lucy Forbes who fantastically directed the first series was off on another job so Molly Manners came in for series two so she wanted to visually evolve the story um, which I think she's done beautifully her argument was whereas series one plays out over three weeks series two plays out over probably five or six months it's a much bigger tale it incorporates much more characters Bethan's world is opening out so Molly wanted to visually open out the the shooting style so it's much um, vaster I think in the way it's shot so we evolved that and then in terms of writing I think one of the things I was really mindful of we rarely see people with bipolar depicted in stories but if we do it would be in the midst of a manic episode which I think is important to see but it's not the only facet of that illness so for me going into series two I I spent particular focus on making sure Trina the mum's storyline could be nuanced and that we would see different parts of the illness that we haven't seen before we do see her have a manic break in series two but it doesn't come until episode four and so yeah that was a really big part for me was like what are all the myriad nuances of of this disorder and how can we show it and that includes someone with bipolar being well and functioning you know that is a part of it and then for Bethan I was also mindful of like bearing in mind this is an autobiographical story I think I I struggled starting to write series two because it was more of like Bethan kind of being a saint and it was a I, I, I sort of I was struggling with it and I was chatting to my incredible script editor Andrew Ellard about it why it wasn't coming to me and I was like I feel like part of this is that I'm making myself out to be a saint like holier than thou just sort of this super mature emotionally intelligent teenager who's just constantly picking up her parents shit and you know there, there were elements of that, that that were real but also there were times when I was a little shit because I was a teenager and I was selfish and I you know made mistakes and, and so Andrew cleverly was like lean into that let's see obnoxious Bethan she doesn't have to be a saint let's open on her being like a little shit basically play how you were when you were that age and so that's another way we evolved it we sort of lent into the fact that whilst Trina is well Bethan is having fun being a teenager and all that comes with that hormonally being gobby being rude etc etc and that read me up so that yeah that was something else we evolved and I mean yeah in terms of leaning on your own experiences I mean what was that for like for you as a, as a writer to kind of look inside your own story and, and your own emotions going through these experiences and, and putting that down on paper how did you decide perhaps what you wanted to show and, and perhaps what you'd heighten or, or dramatize where where's the line I guess between uh, autobiography and, and drama well writing something like this is very cathartic I, I have to say um it forces you to go back into memories that probably you'd rather not revisit that you've kind of lived through as a kid and then just locked away as 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 humans often do and gone that was horrible just don't think about it again 
which serves a purpose to a degree. It means that you can like just move on with your life. But there's that amazing book by a psychologist, The Body Keeps the Score. And I think it's true. The body does keep the score. Even if your brain is trying to forget what you've been through, your, your body doesn't. And so this kind of forced me t- to go back and excavate it all and, and, and just reckon with it. So I writing series two was really emotional. I, I always say I'm not someone who cries very often. And then I started writing series two and in the six, five, half weeks, six weeks that I was writing it, I like wept every day <laughs> in a good way. You know, I felt like I was releasing something. So ultimately, whilst it wasn't necessarily easy, it felt good. It felt therapeutic. It felt cathartic. In terms of like the line between reality and uh, where we dramatize, I've always found that fairly easy to, a, a fairly easy line to tread, I think, because, well, oftentimes truth is stranger than fiction. So very often the reality has been more interesting than anything I could invent anyway. But also I think I've become quite good at just at just being a little bit ruthless. Um, I'm not like, here's my diary and you have to stick to every word. I'm like, no, what's the absolute best TV? And, you know, there's, time, there's times when that's not reality. And, and I'm quite good at just being, yeah, a bit ruthless and going, well, fuck what my mum really said. What, what's a good piece of dialogue? I don't know if that's just the way I'm made up that I find that easy to do, though I'm sure it's other people m- might be wired differently. But um, yeah, I think I, there's a lot of truth purely because that was the most interesting story. And if any point the truth wasn't the most interesting, it went in the bin and something else came in. When you were doing some of the, the pre-publicity before season two launched and um, I, I heard you speaking and you talked about being match fit for writing season two and, and working on other shows to get you kind of into shape. I mean, can you just explain a bit about what, what that means and, and perhaps why you weren't match fit and, and what you needed to kind of do to get into that space to not write the story as such, but just have the technique or the discipline that you needed to, to write the show? It's the um, Ira Glass 10,000 hours thing, you know, that if you want to master any craft, it's just about hours under your belt. And so you can't fast track that. I think a lot of writers will come into this industry with a bit of raw natural ability. I think I had, you know, a, a bit of an ear for good dialogue that's the foundations and then every script you write thereafter you're you're building the house you're putting the layers of bricks in and building up and up um and you just can't you can't cheat it you have to put the hours in and so you know I think on the pilot I'd grown a bit of experience I'd been by the time I was writing the pilot in 2018 I'd worked on Stella with Jones's show I'd written on Casualty I'd done a couple of short films I'd written some spec scripts you know, and I, I could say I had a, a, a degree of understanding of the craft. Then I went on to write series one. You know, I was a little bit better. I would say it's not even that you're a better writer at the end of every job. I think you're a better writer at the end of every draft of every script you write. So yeah, so that was that. And then between series one and series two, I did a new drama series for BBC One called Chloe, created by Alice Seabright. I'd written a film for Baby Cow and I'd done nearly two years on Killing Eve series four, both in the writer's room. And then I wrote three episodes as well. So that's just hours under the belt that you can't, there's no, there's no way around it. You just have to do it. And so, yeah, I, I, I came in just like, I know this craft. I know what I'm doing. I know how to play an audience. I know how to tread the line, finding a laugh and then hitting you in the gut. Stuff that two years ago I had a feeling for, but now I'm like, watch me. I got it. I got it. I know, I know what I'm doing. So I th- yeah, it's not to say it'll be the same on a different job because every every new job you're sort of, you know, you're starting afresh. But on In My Skin, I was like, I got you now. I know what you are. Also to say, like, I know the actors. I know what sounds good in their mouths. I know the characters. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the, the series one and the pilot gave me that knowledge that I wouldn't have had before. No, it's fascinating stuff. And and you mentioned the performances there. We should talk about Gabrielle Creevy and, and Joe Hartley, who play Bethan and, and Trina, mm-hmm. Bethan's mum. I mean, astonishing performances in in most ways and and just particularly emotional those scenes that they have particularly when when Trina's veering from you know okay to completely you know off the charts um you know when she's getting locked up in hospital and things and threatening people um and and Bethan is dealing with this and everything that teenagers go through I mean what would you just say to to working with Gabrielle and Joe and and those conversations you had with them about their characters and and you know the performances that they've put on screen god 
an utter privilege to work with them both and feel extremely lucky that we found them both because I think once a show is cast you can look back at the audition process and see that we saw so many fantastic actresses to play Bethan and fantastic actresses to play Trina obviously you agonize over what should what would be the right pairing and in this instance it just fit you know just that magic alchemy came along even down to the fact that they just happen to look a bit alike you know you put their faces next to each other on screen and they look like mother and daughter and that brings an emotional resonance but they both gave their heart and soul to the performances and it's so um it's sort of like a humbling thing on set and I think every department would feel it when those two become performing like the finale of series one when Bethan and her mum are dancing in the mental hospital and someone walks in that day on set it was just like chills and silence across the floor from the extras to every member of the crew the DOP was crying you know I of course was crying the director was crying some of the some of the the, the supporting artists were crying and it just I think it grabs everyone with its resonance and it just makes you go oh that's why we're here and I don't know that that always happens and and the same thing carried through to series two you know it's a hard job to work on it's low budget there's no time everyone's being to forced being forced to work at a pace they don't want to work at you know it could you know, there are many occasions where people could just be grumpy myself included and then Gabby and Joe begin performing and everyone suddenly goes oh that's why we're here and yeah people just fall silent and it's just it's calming to watch so yeah it was it, it was an absolute thrill and um we handled it all with like just very it was a very sensitively handled by the director Molly myself the actors and all the crew would make space and um, you know we just even when there's no time you find the time to go off into a corner and go where are we at where's your head at how does this feel do you feel safe what do you need to get this performance and yeah we just handled each other with care and or you know sometimes we'd yell cut and one of them would come over and see me sobbing and be like are you okay <laughs> it, it was probably a very like female centric emotionally led set I would say absolutely and um, I mean in, in that case I mean what, what, what was it about this story your own story that meant you wanted to see this on TV. I mean, uh, with mental health, we're seeing, uh, you know, as in society, we're talking a lot, a lot to, about it a lot more. As with TV, we're now seeing it a lot more on TV. So why was this something you wanted to see on TV, your own story? And, and perhaps what lessons have you learned from making the show or, you know, seeing that advancement, you know, in this, this talking point? I wanted to create the show that I wish I could have seen, which sounds kind of maybe a little bit uh, holier than thou, or so, you know, like here I am uh, um, trying to be a savior for my own self. It wasn't quite as noble as that, but I just sort of thought TV is so powerful. It was so powerful in my life. <laughs> it was all I did when I was a kid was be plunked in front of the TV. And I know if I'd have watched something like this, it would have chipped away at so many deep layers of shame. And all of that could have happened so much earlier instead of kind of like living this life carrying around this albatross that I, I didn't need to carry. You know, I, I could have just been honest. I could have told the teacher. I could have spoken to a friend, but I just didn't know that I could. And the same goes for sexuality because, you know, we deal with Beth and falling in love and, and showing a lesbian storyline, a lesbian love story. So I didn't see that. So I didn't see mental health and I didn't see lesbian storylines. And seeing this show would have just made things better and easier and happier. So that was in my mind I think also the theme at the heart of the show is shame this this young girl feeling so deeply ashamed about who she is that she lives a lie and doesn't tell anyone the truth and you know that was me for a long time and I'd moved to London and began working as a writer and certainly things were better I was being far more honest and open to my friends about you know the reality of my upbringing but I, I certainly still wouldn't have spoken about it in professional circles I wouldn't have thought that I could go into the casualty writer's room and been like, guess what? I still felt like I needed to hide it a bit. And so there felt like, I don't know, by the time this, this, the idea of this show came around, it almost felt like the end of the journey to be the teenager who never told the truth to be the adult who goes, oh, here it all is. Just, you can just see it. It's fine. It is what it is. I am who I am. And it's there. And it's been so healing, I have to say. And also the moment I wrote this script, every person who read it was like, oh my God, me too. So you just go, why wasn't I just being honest? Everyone has been touched by mental health. And so that's the point as well, that like we don't really see that many mental health storylines depicted on screen. And yet 
you can't throw a rock without hitting someone who's been affected by it. So why is there this absence? We have to remove stigma around it. And so hopefully this show will have some tiny impact towards that. You're not going to do a season three um, unless you've changed your mind. Is that still the case? Still the case, yeah. <laughs> um, so could tell us a bit about just what you're hoping to do next and, and perhaps as, as a writer in this industry at the moment. I mean, what are your thoughts just on the opportunities and, and the challenges that writers are facing, whether it's you know working on other shows or, or getting your own original ideas commissioned and, and financed is obviously a, always a big issue. I mean, what's it like for you out there, you know, pitching mm. ideas at the moment? It's a really exciting time for me coming off the back of In My Skin because it's done well. So there's been, you know, a shift in my career. The first 10 years, I can say, were very, very different to how this year or the last two years has gone for sure. But I think it's also an exciting time to be a writer who makes up any kind of like minority group because we are as an industry becoming more and more aware that we need to improve diversity so I would say if you're a box tick me being a benefit class lesbian I've got a couple of ticks in my boxes you know it's it's a good time people people are open to meeting you it, it doesn't account for um you still need to have skill and put the work in but at least like maybe you're going to get your foot in the door a little bit easier or, or you're going to book that meeting a little little bit easier so that's exciting <laughs> there's like there's practical things going on as well like it was a struggle to get in my skin made pilot series one and series two and we were going into series two with four BAFTA Cymru's and the best drama at the RTS and still trying to convince the the networks to put money in was a slog um it never ever got easy you know so whilst I say it's exciting and there's there's more opportunities coming up it's still not like here's loads and loads of money go and make whatever you want it's not that yet sadly but for me I think looking forward my next show I'm making with Neris Evans again who's the incredible exec on In My Skin it's another Welsh project going to be with Channel 4 this time and it's set in the 1970s I probably can't say much more than that yet, but um, other than it's Welsh and it's set in the 1970s and um, there's a heavily autobiographical slant to it again. I wasn't born in the 70s, but um, family wise. So that's that. And then I'm I'm also doing a project with Crazy Rose, which is Jean-Marc Vallée's company in America. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's, I don't know if it's the first of its kind. I think it probably is. It's based on the Lumineers have a album that came out a year and a half ago called Three. And it's, um, it's kind of a TV adaptation of a world that they created in their music. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. And then I'm doing a book adaptation in the UK as well of an amazing book by Rosa Rankin G called Dreamland, which I'm really excited about. It's a phenomenal book doing that with sister pictures so I've got these three really exciting really different projects and I'm just like god pinch me you know I didn't know things are going to work out like this and who knows where I'll be next year but it's good to take stock and go this year feels good in my skin creator Kelly Llewellyn speaking with Michael Pickard that's all for this episode but you can hear more by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.